Well, please uh, open your Bibles to uh, Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And I'd like to read from verse 8 to 10, but the middle, the second half of verse 8 down to verse 10. The Apostle Paul, as the Spirit moved him, penned these words. In all wisdom and insight, New American Standard says, verse 9, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention which He purposed in Him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. Now this three verses here is the next jewel in our treasure box that we said verse 3 was our treasure box where it says that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Verse 9 is the main verb, therefore becomes um, our treasure that we're going to focus on today. If you look at verse 9, he made known to us. That is the next jewel on our list our first one, as we said, was found in verse 4, which is to be chosen. Cho- God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. That was the first jewel of our spiritual treasure chest. The next was verse 5, where He says that we were predestined to adoption. Our third in the list here is found in verse 7. We have redemption through His blood, through His cross. The forgiveness of our trespasses was the fourth. And then we come to verse 9, and this is our fifth that comes out of this treasure chest. He made known to us the mystery of His will. So what we have here today is a knowledge of God's will. And in particular, His will for the future, for the end, for the climax of history, for the climax of creation. The mystery of His will is Christ's part in that climax. This is what's being uncovered here. Paul speaks of an ultimate end, an ultimate end that is purpose and planned by God for all creation. Before time, God planned what would be the ultimate end. He designed it, every aspect of creation from the beginning to the middle to the climax. All is designed by the sovereign, eternal, all-wise creator. He has a definite purpose for his creation. It is not running and spinning out of control according to battling forces in the spiritual realm. The future is not left to man's decisions. Politics will not determine the end. We don't control the future. We're not going to destroy it. No war is going to destroy the planet and obliterate history. Nor are we going to save it. Right? We don't decide the purpose of creation. We don't decide the purpose of life, but God does. He has a definite goal, and it is in His timing that all this transpires. This is His will. His will is what dictates what happens in all of history. Satan, fallen humanity, even regenerate humanity may wish to desire something in particular, but they all are impotent compared to the omnipotent sovereign one. His sovereign will, that is, that which He has decreed to happen, cannot be stopped. His will of decree governs the entire universe. All things are, have, and are happening now to accomplish God's desired end. So history is not an endless circulation of repeating history, but is linear. It's, un, it's, it's unfolding to an eventual point at, at history. The goal of God is where this is going. It's not circular history. History is not deemed to repeat itself. Though there might be some repetitions in it, it is linear. It's unfolding to an end that's decided by God. Okay. Now, let's. I want to take us to a few passages to set this in our mind before we come back to Ephesians. And if you want, you can turn with me. If not, write them down. But go to Daniel 4. We've looked at this before, I think, in the previous weeks. But Daniel chapter 4. And this idea that I want to set in our mind that is 
I know not new to us in any way, but I never get tired of studying it myself, so I'm just going to assume you're not going to get tired of hearing it. (laughs) Right? That God is absolutely sovereign, and He has decreed history before it happens, and it's unfolding as He's decreed it. Okay? Because He has an end to it. He has an end. Look at Daniel 4. Pick it up in verse 34 and 35. This, of course, is Nebuchadnezzar when he was left to eat like a a cow in judgment for his pride, verse 34. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. And he says this, For His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but He, God, does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off His hand or say to Him, What have you done? God's will be done. Even the most powerful man on the planet, Nebuchadnezzar, was a wisp of smoke, was a grain of sand compared to the omnipotent, sovereign God. Okay? Great text. Psalm 33. Again, I'm going to go fast to these and you can turn there if you'd like. But Psalm 33. And then after that, I'm going to go to uh, um, Isaiah after Psalm. Psalm 33. Look at verse 11, one place here. And I'm just picking and choosing, cherry picking. These are some of my favorite places to go. But in Psalm 33, look at verse 10 and 11. If you're there, listen. Verse 10 says, The Lord, Yahweh, nullifies, makes nothing, the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. Verse 11, The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart from generation to generation. Okay? In Psalm 115, verse 3, the psalmist writes this, all this that leads to it. So God's decreed something. He has a plan that He's working out, and the nations can make all the plans they want, but they have to yield to God's sovereign plan, and their plans do not contradict God's plan. No matter what's going on in history, you can play... Let's go to the war back in Ukraine right now. Is that contrary to the decree of God? No. Because if you say it is, then we have big troubles. You get bigger troubles than saying that it is. right? God is in full control. His purpose is unfolding. We don't know exactly all of these things, but we understand that these things are unfolding to accomplish His predetermined purpose. right? Man is accountable. God is absolutely sovereign. Um, where am I going? Psalm 115. Um, sorry. Look at verse 3. But our God, in contrast to the nations when they say, where is the God? Verse 3, but our God is in the heavens. He does, notice, whatever He pleases. And what is it that He pleases is that which He's predetermined. See? So He's always happy (laughs) in one sense. And He's always angry, right? The wrath of God against sin. But So God is, is complex in this way, right? He can be wrathful towards sin and at the same time He can be filled with joy and pleasurable. What pleases him to do what he's predetermined. He is playing this out. And in contrast, if you're in Psalm 115, notice what it's contrasted with in verse 4 and 5, the idols of silver and gold. The the gods of the nations are idols, handmade, and they do nothing. Our God is in the heavens and does whatever he pleases. So there's the contrast. But God is that sovereign. Go to Isaiah, if you're tracking. Isaiah 44. Please, Isaiah 44, 6 and 7 will work for us just for what we're doing today. In 44, Isaiah 44, verse 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and, don't you love the thought here, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, kind of Trinitarian language there, I'm thinking, I am the first and I am the last. There is no God besides me. Who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order. From the time that I established the ancient nation, let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. What is he saying there? I know them. 
I know what's going to happen. I know what's in the future because I've, de- I've decreed it. I can declare it because I know. And it's not merely his omniscience where he stands back and can look down the quarter of time and see what's going to happen. Yes, he does that. He can do that because God is outside of time and he is omniscient. He knows all things about all things. But this is even more than that because not only does he know what's going to happen, he's decreed what's going to happen. And he's, he's pleasurable in that. He's unfolding that to a desired end. And man's sin cannot thwart God's decree. Man is still accountable, but man's sin cannot come and disrupt the decree of God. Okay? This is what all this is saying. 46, Isaiah 46. Go to verse 9 through 11. Um, I find myself going here a lot. This is, again, a, a cherry-picked verse. I love this right here. Isaiah 46, verse 9 through 11. Anyway, it says there in verse 9, Remember the former things long past. For I am God and there is no other. I am God. There is no one like me. In what way is there no one like him? I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 10. Declaring the end from the beginning. From ancient times. Things which have not been done. Saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. And what is it in particular? Verse 11. Calling a bird of prey from the east of man. Notice of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. Okay. So in that immediate context there, he's probably talking about Cyrus coming and to, to, uh, decree the rebuilding of the of the wall, the, the temple in Israel. But all of this is saying that God has a purpose that precedes the events. He has a, a will, a decree that precedes the events. If we want to know the decreed will of God, just turn around and look at history. That which is unfolded tells you what God has decreed to happen. And that has unplayed itself. That's what's happening now, okay? Um, go to, I'm going to, well, maybe not. Go to Acts 4, just Acts 2. We've been here before, but I want you to see it again. Um, the, one of the best illustrations of this doctrine that we're talking about is the cross of Christ. Was Christ crucified contrary to the will of God? If you say yes, you got really big problems, right? But if you say no, then you you have a, think of what you're saying. God then has decreed the crucifixion of His Son, and that's what it that's is true. Because look at Acts two, look at verse twenty three, please. Um, twenty three. My New American Standard starts with this man, and that's referencing Christ from the previous verse. So this man, Christ, delivered over notice by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Okay, so delivered over, handed over to be crucified was according to the predetermined plan of God. But look at man's part. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So you have both parts there. God's absolute sovereignty and man's responsibility. Okay. I don't have that all blends together perfectly. I don't know. I just know what it says. And I believe what it says. Look at chapter 4 of Acts. Please, and look at verse 27 and 28. You kind of see the same idea again. um, That God has a purpose that precedes the events. Verse 27 and 28. Notice. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. And this is fulfilling Psalm 2. Okay, Coming to verse 28, look at what it says. To do whatever your hand and your purpose, what? Predestined to occur. So here's here's people who don't know the ultimate end saying, Lord, come and let your predestined will happen. Okay. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. 
Ephesians chapter 1. The first chapter of Ephesians, I want you to look at verse 11. We won't be there today, but it's so clear in verse 11. Look at what it says in 11 of Ephesians 1. It says, also, we have obtained an inheritance. How did it come about? Look at what it says. Having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. You see, his will precedes everything. And the counsel of that will then is what dictates what is going to happen. How he works that out. Okay. At the same time, we must say this, that God is not responsible for sin. It's part of his plan. It's part of his decree. It's part of his purpose. and It's all part of this. But he's not, a, he's not evil. He's not responsible for sin. We are. Again, man's culpable, man's responsible, God's absolutely sovereign. How does that work? I don't know. Just let the Bible tell you. Okay. Okay. Now, with all that said, God has a plan and a definite purpose for his creation, especially his redeemed people and his glorious son. He has a purposed plan. And this is what God the Father has made known to us in our passage in verse 8 and 9. In verse 9, he made known to us the mystery of his will. Okay, We know his will for the end of creation by God's grace. And notice it's to all of us. There is no Christian ignorant, according to this verse, there is no Christian who is ignorant of that which God has determined to happen. Maybe the details, the fine details that come later on in further revelation we may not have, but we do know that all of this ends up in one place, and that's under the reign of Christ. Okay, Whether you're a kid this big or an old man like me, the gospel informs you of that. The true gospel informs you of that. Okay. Now, all this to say then, the main verb in verse 9 made known to us the mystery of his will. It is God the Father who has revealed this truth to us. The mystery of his will is known only by divine revelation. You don't go and hum and have an acorn hit you on the head and say, Oh, I look at that. He makes it known to us. We receive it. We are passive, okay? We are recipients of the divine revelation, okay? And it's, it's not the fruit of your study, though we should study. It's not according to your intelligence. It's not according to your effort. It's not according to your wisdom. It is entirely of God's grace. It is God's favor towards you that has made this known, Okay? Now, if you look at verse 7 and 8, notice what it says. It says, according, in, in verse, at the end of 7, okay, because it, it flows together. In 7, it says at the end there that this redemption forgiveness is according to the riches of his grace. Okay? And then verse 8, it says, this grace which he lavished on us, super abundantly poured it out on us. In what way then was this lavish grace Evidenced is that he made known to you the mystery of his will. Okay? So the grace in, in what Paul's speaking about, the grace that he lavished on you resulted in knowledge of the will of his mystery. That's what he's saying. Okay? So the grace that redeemed, the grace that saved is the grace that made known. You see? Therefore, if you've received grace to be saved, grace to be redeemed, grace to be forgiven. You have the grace. You have the knowledge of His will. Isn't that glorious? That's glorious. No such thing as an ignorant, truly born-again person of the ultimate goal and end. Okay? According to Paul. Get this. My experience does not determine Scripture. Scripture determines my experience. Does that make sense? Well, of course he's saved. I had the same experience. Just give him time. Well, what if Scripture says differently? 
Scripture determines what salvation looks like. Scripture determines what a Christian believes or doesn't believe. You know what I'm saying? This is saying we have received revelation from God that has told us about the mystery of his will, which we will unpack in verses 9 and 10 further. Okay? All right. So, putting this together, look at what it says here in verse 8. Sorry. This this lavish grace shows up in verse 8 to make known the mystery in verse 9. But before that, you notice in all wisdom and insight. And because there's no punctuation in the original, this the punctuation here is from the translators trying to make sense of this to help us understand. The Legacy Bible, which is the new... Master Seminary Bible puts the period after insight. Okay? The ESV and the NAS, the ESV puts a comma after us. The New American Standard in verse 8 puts a period after us. Okay? Now, I don't want to get stuck in the weeds here, but what they're doing is trying to make sense of a long run-on sentence and how to reveal to us what Paul is saying. If you put the period after insight, you're saying that the result of the grace is that we have wisdom and insight. Okay? Which is true. Other passages will confirm that. We have the mind of Christ. Okay? But I like how the NAS and the ESV put it. They are saying that all wisdom and insight should refer to God. And it's in his wisdom and insight that has then moved to inform my mind to give me the knowledge of his will. Okay? Um, so I take it as God's wisdom. So the all-wise, all-knowing God had grace on you and that wisdom and knowledge granted you knowledge of his will. So the result of his wisdom and insight is that you have a knowledge of what he's determined for the future as far as the ultimate end. Okay? Let's see here. Look at verse 9. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will. Okay? The word mystery... Paul uses this a lot. Mystery in the sense that it was once covered and cloaked and unknown, but now has been uncovered and exposed so that all can see and understand. It's not mysterious. That's not the meaning here. As though it's shrouded in obscurity and it's cloudy and you can't really make it out. That's not what he's saying here. It's not mysterious. It was once unknown, now it is known and understood. Okay? Alright. And it's known and understood by divine revelation. God has made that known to us, which otherwise could not be known. Go see how Paul uses this in Ephesians. Go to chapter 3, please. And it'll help, Lord willing, to grant us more understanding here. Okay. Um, Look at verse 2 through 6 of Ephesians 3. If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you. Verse 3, that by revelation there was made known. There's that same word that's found in chapter 1, verse 8. Made known to us, that same word right there. there, Verse 3 of chapter 3, there was made known to me the mystery... Well, if it's made known to you, guess what? It's no longer a mystery, (laughs) right? It was once a mystery, but now it's not now. As I wrote you in brief, verse 4, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. So there's there's more definition to mystery here. Mystery of Christ, verse 5, which in other generations was not made known, there's our same word, to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. And what specifically is he talking about? The mystery? Look at verse 6. That the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So it's no longer a mystery. Right? I know it. 
It's right there. Okay? That's what he says. But this is what has been revealed. Okay? Alright. So the mystery is not singular in its aspect. There's many aspects to the mystery that Paul is mentioning, right? We have Gentile inclusion is part of the mystery. Christ himself is part of the mystery. The end for which God created the whole universe in the first place is part of the mystery. Okay? But it's all in Christ. It's all in Christ. Uh, look at verse uh, 8 of chapter 3, please. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. And look at what he goes in verse 9. And to bring to light, the New American Standard says, what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things, verse 10, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known, there's our verb, through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenlies. Isn't that fascinating? God has revealed to us that which angels don't even know, because it's through us that they gain the knowledge that he's granted us, according to that verse. Okay? Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Um, it's incredible, actually. Incredible. Can I go to chapter 6? Chapter 6. Did I get this? Yeah, that's good. Chapter 6, um, verse 19 and 20. He says, he's requesting prayer. And then verse 19, he says, And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me. Don't you like that? He's re- he is passive in the sense, I need God to help me speak. In the opening of my mouth, and what will, what's the content? To make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. That's good stuff. You know, the, the gospel, we have the under, we have knowledge of God's mystery. Because it's in the gospel message. We all who are truly born again have been enlightened by the Spirit of God, granted knowledge of this mystery that is in Christ Jesus. Is that not glorious? And isn't it cool that the mystery, you compare this to the, the cults and the, and the, in the mysterious religions of Gnosticism even unto this day. All the secret handshakes of Mormonism. All the this and this and this and don't do that and don't you tell anybody. Right? That's not what Paul said. That's not Christianity. The mystery of Christianity has been made known and we're commanded to make it known. (laughs) We're not supposed to hide it. We're supposed to spit it out. We're supposed to show to the world what God has intended for creation in His Son, Jesus Christ. Right? How awesome is that? We've been given, we're the most privileged people on the planet. Hands down, the most privileged people on the planet. We have the knowledge of the mystery of the Creator and what He's intended for His Son and for His redeemed, in fact, for all of creation. And we're not very smart. That's divine revelation. We are trophies of grace. (laughs) Wow, how did you learn that? I hang out with the guy who made it. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Right? I hang out with the right guy. Go to Colossians, please, real quick. Chapter 1. I just want to show... Now, Colossians is written from the same time period as Ephesians, known as the first imprisonment of Paul. So it's the same... Same room, right? Same guards chained to him, same time period. So you see a lot of similar threads in Ephesians and Colossians. Okay, in Colossians chapter 1, look at verse 26 and 27. He's talking about the stewardship of preaching the word of God. Verse 26 of chapter 1, that is, the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to who? His saints. So not just the holy apostles and prophets, but to his saints. Verse 27, to whom God will to make known, look at this, 
It is God who willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. And what particularly is this mystery? The rest of verse 27, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We know that by divine revelation. That's good stuff. That is really good stuff. Well, I got more. I, I might as well stay there. Chapter 2. Um, look at verse 2, please. At the end, let's see, the, the, yeah, the, the end, last couple lines in verse 2, 2 of Colossians, where it says, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, a true knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ Himself. Christ Himself is the mystery of God. Okay? Verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In one person, Jesus Christ. That's why we are here to promote His fame. Look at chapter 4, verse 3. One other place. In Colossians, it says, Praying at the same time for us as well. Notice it's very similar to Ephesians 6. That God will open up to us a door for the Word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned. That I may, notice verse 4, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Right? It's not shrouded in mystery. It's uncovered. The, 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 the shroud has been torn away. And that which was once hidden is now made known for the whole world to see. And we know what it is. And so therefore we are then commanded to go reveal, proclaim the mystery of Christ. Right? That's good stuff. So then, we New Testament believers, go back to Ephesians, please, chapter 1. We are the most privileged people on the planet, as though we needed to be reminded of that. But we are the most privileged people, right? We, 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 have, uh, we have greater than PhDs, and we didn't even go to school, right? It's the one who knows all things who gave us that, right? That's awesome. Um, so think of this. We have knowledge of that which was previously unknown before Christ came. So think of the Old Testament saints. And First Peter talks about how the prophets longed to look into that which they wrote down because they didn't understand who it was talking about and the timing of it and all the details of it. And in First Peter chapter 1, I think it's 10 through 12 in there, they longed to look in what we know by grace. And not only the prophets who wrote, but the angels long to peek into, they, they crane their neck, they strain their neck to look into the things that we know by grace. That's incredible. I'm dumber in a post. And you know that. But you know what? I know more than holy angels. By grace. By grace. Praise God. Praise God. So look at Ephesians 1 again, please. This grace in all wisdom and insight made known to us the mystery of His will. How does He make it known to us? It's not stated in our text necessarily, though it is grace. But think of this. He grants us repentance. He grants us faith. He he enlightens our minds. He delivers us, rescues us from spiritual darkness. He delivers us from spiritual death. He breaks the chains of bondage. He does this. He comes and grants us a understanding of the gospel contents, such as the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, the triunity, His atoning death, His burial and resurrection. He has granted us that understanding. We, we've been enlightened to that. We recognize what 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, right? The God who said, let there be light, has shown in our hearts to show us the glory of God in the face of Christ. And that happens immediately. You don't come to that. You don't work your way up to that. No matter how smart you think you are, right? You are spiritually dead until He quickens you and makes you alive. And at that moment, He takes the scales from and you understand who Jesus Christ is. He is the omnipotent, eternal God. My wife's testimony from the tractor, right? 
battling. Well, it seems to say in the Old Testament that this this Yahweh is the same as Jesus. Well, we know that can't be true, right? And she's me- messing that in her mind, and all of a sudden, God in sovereign grace goes, let there be light. And she goes, you're God. You are God. You don't, you don't work your way to that. Because there's a lot of people who study who are spiritually dead and remain in that condition. And then there's us. <laughs> and he has made it known to us, beloved. Matthew eleven twenty five. Remember, it's well pleasing to you, Father, to do it in this manner. That you have, you have, you have shrouded it to the wise and the intelligent and you have uncovered it to the infants, to children. Right? Jesus says that about the Father of how they come to know Jesus Christ. All right? So we know these things by divine grace, divine revelation. In verse 9, he made known to us the mystery of his will. And then you see here, this is, gets, oh, it's amazing, the sovereign act of God in revealing the mystery of the redemption that is in Christ, staying in context here, as we have said, is not based on us, but it's based on him. It's based on God's grace. And in particular, if you look at verse 9, after will, it says, according to his kind intention. According to his kind intention. It is, kind intention is the word good pleasure. Okay? He used that same term up in verse 5 when he said predestination was according to the kind intention, good pleasure of his will. Right? So predestination finds its source in the pleasure of God. It made him happy. So then here in verse 9, it makes God happy. To uncover these things to his children. Okay? The good pleasure word here, this, this kind intention, it's that which seems good to God. It's that which makes him happy. It brings him pleasure. It brings him delight. It is the well-being. What is it that brings him delight, right? Is the well-being of his own redeemed people. That which is best for them makes God happy. I like that. Thus, then, the delight, the, the, the pleasure, the satisfaction which God has in blessing the saints is found in the fact that what he does for them is dictated by what is good for them. Is God not for you? Or is he against you? He's for you. Right? Romans 8. Well, for you in what way? For your condemnation? For your damnation, right? No, for your good. Doesn't later, or just a little bit before this, says he works all things out together for the bad of his people. No. He works it out for the good because he's predetermined that good. He's purposed that good. Here, the good here is that he has made known that which he's intending to do at the end. And it's from a heart of, it brings in pleasure to give you that understanding. Okay? God is a loving Father. I mean, that's enough. But God is making this known. Therefore, it's dictated by what is good for them. What He decides is good for them and His heart is committed to that. Now look at here in verse 9 again where it says, according to His kind intention, it moves on. This is that which he purposed in him. Wow. In him is Christ. Okay. So the end of verse 9, look what it says. According to his kind intention, which he, God the Father, purposed in Christ. Okay. The word purpose means to set before. And I think even the ESV has set before. Right? Yeah, so that's a good translation of this word. Protithemi means to set before oneself, which is the idea of to determine or to decide. It's putting the idea in front of you, so it's like it's you've decided this. Okay, So this is saying, according to his kind intention, which he, God the Father, set forth, put forth in Christ Jesus. God the Father determined beforehand to do his elect people good. And this was in Christ. This unfolds then even further when you get to verse 10, that the purpose that God had in mind is revealed in the first part of verse 10. Look at this. And this is going to, I'm going to 
try to stay the original. The NAS kind of makes it not so clear to me. The ESV oversimplifies, but gets the idea better, I think. Verse 10. With a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of time. That's like a mouthful of marbles to me. It's like, what are you meaning by this, right? In the original, it's simplified to this, okay? Into an administration of the fullness of time. That's what it, that's what it originally says, okay? So get this. The purpose that God purposed in Christ is shown in that the administration of the fullness of times. The administration, this is fascinating, two words together, which means house law, okay, or the law of a home. It's, 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 it's this, it refers to the management of a household according to a law, a rule. The idea of administration has the idea of overseeing household affairs. It's to be a manager, administrator, or even a steward. Okay? The steward who's working out the plan that's for the good working of the house. Does that make sense? Yeah? So then, what this is saying then, what, what the father purposed in his son is what God in verse 10 is overseeing and managing the fullness of times. Okay. Hang with me, please. Hang with me. Okay. So then what is we saying? We're saying this refers to God then, He, His administration. For instance, we talk about our administration over there in Washington, right? <laughs> well, kind of we do. But anyway, His administration... Any administration, Sacramento, his administration is the outworking of a plan, isn't it? This is, this is our administration's policies. This is saying God has purposed in Christ Jesus something in the future. We'll get there soon. And God is managing history according to what he purposed in Christ. Okay, so then, the fullness of time, fullness means obviously when things come to the full, come to the top, it's to, it's, it's reached its finish, it's reached its climax, right? It has, uh, it's done. Fullness of times. This is fascinating too. Chronos, there's two words for time. See how precise the New Testament is. You could read your, read your English Bible and you would not know the differences of some of these words. It doesn't mean our English Bible is deficient. It just, anytime there's a translation, you lose originality intent. Okay. Chronos, where we get chronology, talks about sequential time. History, right? Day after day after day. Chronological. Um, in Galatians 4.4, 4, in the fullness of time, chronos... At the right time of chronological history, God sent forth His Son. Right? So there was a day on the calendar according to God's plan that was the time for God to send Jesus Christ. Okay? Chronology. This word here is kairos, which is not the same. Kairos speaks of ages, speaks of eras, seasons maybe is better. So, one translator I came across put it like this. Within the chronological times are these joints of seasons. For instance, we're in the age or the season of the church. There's the millennial kingdom coming. That's a different era, a different season. There's the eternal age coming. Do you see? And in the Old Testament, there's different eras, different ages, seasons. Okay? Mosaic law governed the old covenant. All right. So what he's saying here <laughs> is that God is the manager over the epics and seasons of history. He's overseeing it because he's designed it. And remember it goes back to the end of verse 9 what he purposed in Christ. This is what he's overseeing 
the epochs and seasons of history. So then, God the Father is the administrator who's overseeing the seasons of human history so that life is not random acts of billions of individuals. It's not the will of Satan or man that decides direction. It's, it's, it, no, it's none of that, right? God has already written out and determined the seasons. The, the, he's determined the end and God has purposed, decided that the end includes Everything coming up under the sun, S-O-N, in our happiness. Now think about this. Listen or turn, Acts 1. I tell you, you get the idea that God is massive. He's far beyond anything man's mind can put together. Praise God. Right. Look at verse 7. This is when they asked him, Lord, in verse 6, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Verse 7, he said, it's not for you to know the times or, what does your text say in verse 7? Seasons. That's our word kairos. That's our word for time in our Ephesians text. Okay. So you have, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has fixed by His own authority. God the Father has fixed. They're set. They're not fluid. They're set in time. That's why He can say in the fullness of time. It's not fluid. God is not willy-nilly, wishy-washy on how it's going to end and when and all of that. It's set and fixed, and He did that before history. And therefore, everything is playing out linear to that end that He's purposed. Therefore, He can say in Ephesians that in the fullness of times, God is the one administrating that. He's overseeing that. That's incredible. Go to Acts 17. Maxie mentioned this. You think you chose to live at this time in history, right? You think you chose to to be to be the children of your parents. <laughs> you think you do. That's how much, right? Look at Acts seventeen. This is incredible. Verse twenty six. One place here. Verse twenty six. And he, God, made from one man, Adam, every nation of mankind. Notice what reason to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed pre-appointed times and boundaries of their habitations. How incredible. How much did you have to do in your birth? You chose your parents? No. You chose to to be born where you were and and all of that. Chose your certainly you chose your eye color, right? Certainly you chose your hair color. Well, yeah, I guess you can now, but right? <laughs> no, God did. Oh, it's genetics, indeed. Who designed genetics? Who decreed these things? God is that massive. He's the Mount Everest beyond. And He's predetermined history and He's working it out. And He's made that known to us by His grace through His gospel. We have this understanding, we have this knowledge that it's God who is administrating, overseeing the, 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 the seasons of history. That's amazing. I hope, it, I hope you draw courage from that. Settled. It's not up in the air, according to God. right? He's not uncertain of anything. Let him have it. He's sovereign. He's the administrator. Now think of this. In Paul, go back to Ephesians, please. When Paul says there in verse 10 that God is the administrator of this fullness of time that he's purposed, what does that guarantee? If he's the manager, if he's the overseer, of the seasons, what is it guaranteeing? Say again. It'll happen. Are you unsure of that? Should be a resounding. It's going to happen. 
And you can't stop it. Praise God. Praise God. He is going to make it happen. He's overseeing it to make sure it happens. He's guaranteeing it. That's what he's saying here. But what is he guaranteeing? Look at what he says. What is the ultimate purpose for creation, for redemption, is found in the last half of verse 10. And it demands a book. In fact, I think Jonathan Edwards wrote a book on this. Right? Look at what it says in 10. The, the appositional. In other words, what does he mean by the fullness of times? He means this at the end of 10. The summing up, that's NAS, I think the ESV has to unite. All things in Christ, things in the heavens and things in the earth. This is absolutely... By the way, how many ESV translations are here? Not as many as I thought. And the others are the ones that Jesus used? Yes? <laughs> Good. All right. Well, I was going to switch, but I'm not going to now. Um, you're kidding me. The only inspired English version. <laughs> oh, okay. I like that one too. Um, I did not look at that text. In verse 10, the second half of 10, what does it say? Please. In Ephesians yes, sir. Uh, so just read 10. In the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. Yeah, that's, that's good too. That's good too. NES chose summing up. New King James chose to gather together. ESV says to unite. Okay, you get the idea then of what the original word has with it by those three translations, right? Um, think of this then. To sum up, this is incredible. When the fullness of time seasons come, when that's finished, right? The finish of it. The last season which I would think is the millennial kingdom, thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ. When that is done, you have the great white throne, you have all judgment, everything is made right, it's completed, the fullness of time, and God's going to make sure that that happens. You see, it's then when the summing up of all things, or to unite all things, or to gather all things in one happens. To sum up, using my New American Standard, summing up, the original word here, again, I, I, I don't do this for any other reason than try to explain to you what the text is saying. So I, I don't want to be accused of trying to be smart by using Greek terms, but you can't do this without that, to me anyway. Um, all that to say, summing up is two words together. This is incredible. Transliteration would be A-N-A, Anna, right? And a, and a word which means head, kephala, kephale, kephalao, okay? What does this mean? Well, ana means again, okay? So the idea of the original word means to bring back again under one head. So you get the unity idea, you get the gathering idea, but both of those miss the idea of again, the NAS has missing too. But the original word has this emphasis on again. So get this. It's to gather up again into one. Again refers to that which was previously dispersed or scattered. Okay? Obviously, at the fall of man in Genesis 3, sin came in and things scattered. Yeah, Things went out from under the lordship of God. And now you got a bunch of rebel, you got a bunch of rebel elements and rebel creation and rebel humans and rebel animals. Why do sharks eat people? I was talking, right? Why do sharks eat people? Well, yeah, they're hungry, but because of sin. Why do grizzle bears go after you? Because of sin. Remember in the millennial kingdom, the kid lays by the cobra's hole and the lion and the lamb get together. You know, why is that? Because there's things changed. You see, God did not create things that way. God did not create predators. Sin did. Sin did. So what is this saying? That God's ultimate goal and purpose for creation is to regather again, bring it up underneath the headship of Christ. Wow. 
my Jesus. You would never have guessed that, would you? He's born in a manger. His mother's Mary. He grew up as a carpenter. He was crucified on a cross as a rebel. After he was mocked and scorned and hated. And you're telling me all of creation is going to come under his headship. I know that because God made it known to me. And you know that because that's the gospel. Isn't that glorious? So one of the jewels that comes out of Ephesians 1 is not only that you're chosen before time, you're predestined to be a child, you've been redeemed, you've been forgiven, and you've been given this knowledge of the ultimate climax of all of creation. Boy, I wish it was more exciting to be a Christian. <laughs> I'm telling you, man, think of this. The, the, the result of sin disjointed and scattered and corrupted all of creation. And so there's a disunity in all of creation. But here is God planned a future where he'll regather everything as he's predetermined. And he's working out right now, beloved. He's working out everything to accomplish that text. He's administrating the seasons. There is no... No country, no army, no politician, no matter where they are today on the planet that's going to outdo this, undo this. God, In fact, God will use them to further along His purpose so that everything comes under the kingship of Jesus Christ. That is incredible. That is incredible. That's stunning. I know I don't do it credit, but I just, I'm thrilled by that, right? He is bringing together that which is scattered so that there's a unity under the head in Christ Jesus. So then these words ought to be used. Recovering. God is recovering. God is restoring that which was lost in the garden. In the first Adam, paradise lost. In the second Adam, paradise restored. In Christ Jesus, right? God will bring all creation back in line under His Lordship, but more specifically in Christ. Sin has broken the unity, has corrupted, and we are under a curse. But because of God's redemption and the death of Christ, both humans and creatures can be restored to a pre-sin state. That's what He's working out. There's a new heaven and a new earth promised, isn't there? Where First Peter says we're righteous, or Second Peter three, righteousness will dwell on this new heaven and new earth. Romans eight twenty nine says that there was predestined to adoption. How's that go? Predestined to be sons, created in the image of God, so that Christ would be the firstborn of many brethren. What's he talking about? This is this restoration. This is the, the purpose of redemption is that God will restore all that has been cast out under his reign and rule. All evil will be brought where it belongs. The word reconciled has the idea of making peace, but also it has the idea of bringing back in line. To reconcile the edge of your paper, you know, is to bring it in line. So not only are we at peace, but this reconciliation that God has accomplished through the death, burial, and resurrection of His Son is that even rebels, even Satan is reconciled in that He comes under line and cannot go anywhere but there. And He's under the eternal judgment of God. That has not happened yet in the sense of its culmination. Christ has accomplished what was needed to do that, but the plan of God is unfolding. To that end. Oh. I just, can I just read to you a few things and then I'll let you go. I, I just, Hebrews 2, and then I'm going to go quickly to Romans. And, but follow this thought. In Hebrews 2, verse 5 through 8, it says this, For he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere, and, he's, and he quotes Psalm 8 here, 
What is man, listen now, what is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. Exaltation. Verse 8 says, You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But look at what the, or listen, the rest of verse 8 says, But now we do not yet, yet see all things subjected to him. The promise of God here is that all things will be brought under the subjection, under the rule of the Son. We don't see it yet. But it's already, it's already been pre-appointed. And Christ accomplished it through His death and burial and resurrection. And God is overseeing that right now, those seasons. He's making sure that this happens. Um, I think I'm just gonna go to 1 Corinthians. Way too much stuff. But listen to 1 Corinthians 15. Or, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, yeah. Um, The Father has designed that, that all of creation would be subject to the Son. And in 1 Corinthians 15, I'm going to pick it up in verse 23 and read to 28. Listen to this. But each one in his own order, talking of resurrection. Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. After that, those who are Christ at his coming, second coming. Then comes verse 24, the end, climax. When he hands over the kingdom, the son does, to the God and Father. When he has abolished all rule, all authority and power. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he, the Father, is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. Isn't that amazing? The Father will not be subject to the Son. That's fascinating. Intertrinitarian stuff. Verse 28 says this, When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him. Why? So that God may be all in all. Wow. So the Son then is the, the centerpiece of God's predetermined purpose of why He created and redeemed a people. That all creation would be returned back under the kingship of God, particularly His Son. And when all things come to that climax of being subject to the Son and everything is reconciled, everything is put in place, evil is dealt with, final judgment dealt with, final reward, now we go into the eternal state. What is this about? The Son then will take the kingdom of God that was granted to Him by the Father and He will give it to the Father. And the Father will be all in all and the Son even is subject to the Father. Now, in close, this is where Philippians 2 is, where every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay? All right. Now, if that's the goal of God, that there is this brought a regathering under the headship of Christ so that there is a unity. That's the goal of God. Where does that show up now? Before it actually comes to its fruit climax at the fullness of seasons, where do we see a snapshot of this unity? Where all peoples come under one headship, right? In the church. In the church. Where every, where there's people of every tongue and tribe and every people and every ethnicity. 
in every gender, in every, every social level. There's no, there's no rich or poor, right? There's no, there's no male or female. It's Galatians 3.28, that in Christ Jesus we're one, right? Um, what's the exhortation found in Ephesians 4? After all of this talk for three chapters of this unity is, is this exhortation to preserve the unity and the bond of peace. The world looks at the church and gets a glimpse of the unity that God has accomplished through redemption. So we need to then, my final thought here, based on what God has made known to us about what He intends for creation, we better work really hard now to show that we believe that by working hard to preserve the unity. Right? doesn't mean tolerate sin, doesn't mean tolerate error. It means it actually means just the opposite. We deal with sin and it comes to the truth. Because the truth is what unifies. You've been chosen, predestined, whether you believe it or not. <laughs> You're redeemed and forgiven, whether you feel like it or not. And you've been given this knowledge of what God intended for the end of time. So let us live in light of that. Which is to work hard for unity. But our unity should be governed, should be directed this way. To the praise of the glory of His grace. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your grace. Help us to live out that which You have given to each one of us. That we are all equally blessed with every spiritual blessing. Father, if there's anyone here who truly does not know you, has not repented in trusting you, I pray you do a work in their heart right now and that you bring them to yourself and bring them under your lordship. In Jesus' name, amen.